So for those of you who I haven't met yet, my name is Nayaswami Gandev, and our class this morning is titled The Science of Religion, which, not coincidentally, was the title of the first talk that Headmaster gave in this country and the title of his first book. And it was very interesting how, as Jyotish and David were saying yesterday, that Master's arrival in this country you know, coincided with uh, the advent of so much science, which had been building up over the preceding centuries, but sort of really busted loose in 1900 or so when we entered Dwapara Yuga proper, and that, you know, with the automobile and the airplane, radio, even electricity wasn't all that old at that time. And the tenor of the nation was really going to be receptive to a message that uh, was scientifically oriented, technologically oriented. Um, it was almost like God planned it that way. <laughs> and, uh, of course, when mid-century, mid-century of the 1900s, uh, Master's autobiography had hit, again, there was even more technology and science in the air. And people were going to be much more receptive to a message of a scientific approach to religion because science and religion had been sort of taking divergent paths for quite some time in this country. And what Master was pointing out is that religion itself always had had two divergent paths within it and that the the path that he wanted to emphasize was not sort of his personal path, was the path of self-realization, which was very much more parallel to the course that science was taking, the investigative approach. I couldn't resist um, looking through the autobiography with the aid of a computer, of course, um, and I found there's actually 148 mentions of the word science, scientist, Scientific, 148 of those, and two whole chapters devoted to scientists, J.C. Bush and Luther Burbank. It was, it was a message that, you know, Master wasn't just kind of uh, playing to the crowd, that this was what the crowd was really ready for at last, and hadn't been ready up until that time. I want to read, this is not from the autobiography, but from his early lessons, a brief excerpt. Our master said, The scientist gets results because he applies the laws of impartial reasoning and the universal laws of nature. He experiments and tests. He does not receive his knowledge by shutting himself up in a room and praying for it. He tirelessly and actively applies himself toward getting results. Religion must use the same methods. It should delve into the real inner nature of man and teach man how to know himself. It should separate the dross of superstition from real religion by burning it in the furnace of scientific investigation. And this is a theme that, that Master came back to again and again in his teaching, in his books. It's just, it's just omnipresent that he would say, you know, don't believe what I say, test it. Tested it through your own experience. And what tools to use for testing? Well, the, the tools of science, unfortunately, 
which are what our five senses and the intellect working on sense data the tools of science are not adequate for the spiritual search they're certainly uh, useful for everyday living they're certainly useful for natural science but they don't cut it when it comes to the spiritual search they're not enough now I re will read a brief excerpt from autobiography of a yogi the master explains why so God is an absolute unity he cannot appear as the separate and diverse manifestations of a creation except under a false or unreal veil that cosmic illusion is Maya physical science cannot formulate laws outside of Maya the very texture and structure of creation nature herself is Maya natural science must perforce deal with their ineluctable quiddity it's my favorite sentence in the autobiography <laughs> well, I've never read a book where I had to look up so many words <laughs> But in this case, what he's saying is uh, natural science, therefore, must necessarily deal with the inescapable essence of Maya. In her own domain, Maya is eternal and inexhaustible. Future scientists can do more than probe one aspect after another of her varied infinitude. Science thus remains in a perpetual flux, unable to reach finality fit indeed to formulate the laws of an already existing and functioning cosmos but powerless to detect the law framer and soul operator Sri Teshwar put it a bit more succinctly <laughs> in his inimitable fashion when, uh, when he happened to meet up with a famous uh, Indian chemist who refused to believe in God because science had as yet uh, devised no means for detecting God, and Sri Yukteswar said, So, you have inexplicably failed to isolate the supreme power in your test tubes. <laughs> I recommend an unheard of experience. Examine your thoughts unremittingly for 24 hours, then wonder no longer at God's absence. <laughs> And what both of these quotes are saying, basically, again, is that the tools of Maya, the tools of natural science within Maya, are, are, are part of Maya themselves. That the five senses and the intellect, we're not going to be able to lift ourselves out of Maya. That's like lifting ourselves by our own bootstraps. I have a friend who's a disciple of another guru who tells a story of uh, one day, uh, there was a satsang, and the... Uh, a bunch of disciples were gathered around the guru, and there was one disciple who had rather um, a lofty opinion of his ability in hatha yoga. And the guru, tuning into this, uh, asked him, can you do half lotus pose? And the disciple said, yes, sir. And he went into half lotus pose, and the guru said, very good. He said, can you do full lotus pose? And the disciple Proudly went into full lotus pose, beautiful ex exhibition, and the master said, very good, very good. Now, uh, with your right hand, grab your hair in the top of your head. Disciple did it. Now lift yourself off the floor. <laughs> Which, of course, we can't do. 
But what he's saying is that what we're looking for, we can't do with the means that we're so accustomed to in our lives, that there needs to be something much, much bigger coming into the picture. And you know, it's even worse than that. It's even worse than the familiar tools of the senses and the intellect not being able to take us out of Maya. They conspire to keep us in Maya because of our, our sensory gratification tendencies that we have all, no doubt, gotten free of in this lifetime, but they still, they still hang on from previous lives, no doubt. And they also distract the mind. The mind is constantly outwardly engaged. The emotions are constantly uh, stirred up. And as a result, these, these aspects of Maya, the senses and the mind, just tend to keep us locked in. And the idea then has to be, there has to be some other tool, something else that can take us out of this realm of, of Maya in, into God-realization, if that's the name of the game. And Yogananda was always very strong about that. It is the name of the game, especially the realization of God as divine bliss and that, that ultimate essence of the divine behind all the other manifestations that we see, that we even feel, just that divine bliss that is behind everything. What's going to take us out of Maya and into that? Well, of course, ultimately, it's going to be divine grace that we're not going to be able to you know, lift ourselves up into divine consciousness all by ourselves, that, that God's grace has to come into the picture. But that doesn't mean there's nothing for us to do that there are a number of things we can do, and I'd like to talk about two of them. One of them is something that the Master emphasized again in his very first talk, his very first book in this country, and that's pranayama, that the control of the life force, so that the life force is constantly flowing out from the spine, out into the periphery of the body where the senses are located, and it's constantly drawing us out, drawing us out, drawing also not just the, the, the sense energy out, but the mind gets drawn out by that constant outpouring of energy to the periphery of our body. He said the first thing that we have to do is cut that link. We have to be able to stop that outflow of energy at will, not permanently, you know, we need the senses, they, they have their uses, but to be able to stop that outflow of energy, the outflow of consciousness into the, into the material world and, and draw ourselves back into the inner world. And he said that, of course, uh, Kriya Yoga, as you might imagine, is the, the technique par excellence for, for doing that, cutting off that outflow, but really, in a very real sense, all of the techniques that he taught are helpful for cutting off that outward flow. When just Hong Sa, for example, you know, the very act of that inwardly directed concentration begins to withdraw the life force from the periphery of the body, from the the process of activating the senses, as as Master put it. He said, to, "We disconnect the sense telephones through that act of inward." concentration in Hong Sao, even though we're not trying to work directly on the energy, it just happens through the act of concentration, of course, energization.
is another good example how we not necessarily about drawing off from the periphery but rather gaining control over the life force so that we can withdraw it through the agency of will whenever we want to and Oh, by the way, I want to invite everyone to join us this fall for the 30-day energization challenge. Okay? It's, uh, it, we're going to have 30 days of plunging deeper into energization, and uh, it's, you can do it at home. It's free. Uh, you'll get an email every day with uh, tips for energization, video clips, answers to frequently asked questions, answers to questions that should be frequently asked but aren't. <laughs> So if you'd like to be part of that, you can sign up through the Expanding Lights newsletter at the bottom of each page on the expandinglight.org website. There's a little link that says newsletter, and you can sign up. The September issue of that newsletter will give you uh, instructions on how to get involved in the 30-day uh, energization challenge. So I invite you to do that. But this, this you know, Swamiji taught all over the world, taught master's devotees all over the world, and he... I heard, often heard him express his disappointment that so few of them really understood or even practiced the energization exercises, which is a great, such a great technique for gaining control over the life force, for taking it away from the places where we don't want it at ever, any given time. So we sit for Hong Sa, for example. We don't have to wait for Hong Sa to do its magic of taking energy away from the periphery of the body through our own will, through our own ability to influence the energy in the body through the will, we can withdraw from the periphery, give Hong Sa a head start so they can do something much, much greater than that. So the, the techniques that Master taught are marvelous for achieving that, that little disconnection, that voluntary disconnection from the things that pull us outward in our lives. Now, there's something more, though. There's something more that we can do, and this is what I want to spend most of my time talking about, because it's one of our most important faculties, and yet it's, in a way, the hardest to talk about, because it's feeling. And feeling isn't about words. Words are of the intellect, and Feeling is of the heart, the heart chakra, the energy center right in the center of the chest near the physical heart. And, you know, as soon as you mention something like feeling, the, the natural scientists run in terror. Because this is, the, this is anathema. This is what they want to keep out of their researches, keep out of their experiments. And given the nature of feeling that they're talking about, that's a good idea. Because they're talking about feeling as emotion, as desires, as expectations, as likes and dislikes. I remember a friend of mine who's a, a very, of a very scientific type, he has scientific work. I just happened to ask him once, apropos of nothing, uh, whether he ever used intuition in his, in his work. And he said, absolutely not. I never let emotions get involved in, in what I'm doing. Because that's the... Uh, that's a very common perception of, of feeling, that it is only emotions and such, and it is emotions and such at one level. But what Master is talking about 
And what Swami often talked about in the application of the yoga techniques is feeling as its higher octave of intuition, of that direct perception of what is, without the filter of the intellect, without the filter of past habits and subconscious associations, just direct perception. And the best scientists don't run from that. They, you know, Einstein said that, that uh, the only thing of value is intuition. That's very interesting. The only thing of value in his work, of course, was intuition. And I remember when I was in graduate school in mathematics, you know, there were, most of us were in a clump of students who were of more or less equal ability. But there were two people in the group who just weren't in that clump, who had the had such an intuitive feel for mathematics, they were like a breed apart. And it was always uh, humbling to be around them because they weren't any older than I was. They were basically the same age as I was. But uh, they just had this, this intuitive appreciation. They could see possibilities. They, they could see likelihoods that would never even occur to the rest of us because they had refined, at least in that part of their lives, that intuitive faculty. And, oh, by the way, speaking of counting things in Autobiography of a Yogi, I counted something else as well. I counted references to the specific fields of science. Uh, physics, six times. Chemistry, six times. Biology, once. Total of 13, not bad. Mathematics, 21. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> so, <laughs> the, question, the question really is, okay, I want intuition. I want this, this higher expression of feeling. And the tendency can be to think, oh, you've either got it or you don't. That you are a person who is intuitive or you are not. But you know, the, the, there's a whole spectrum of feeling awareness within our consciousness. And at one end of the spectrum is all the emotional uproar, the, the anger, the, the infatuation, the desperation, the totally lost your center happiness. You know, that is at one end of the spectrum of, of feeling. At the other, and intuition lies at the other end, but there's all this territory in between, and most of the time, each one of us is somewhere in between. And the question is not just, okay, I've got to go all the way to its intuition or bust, you know, all the way to the far end of that pure, sweet, calm, utterly calm knowing. The question really is, how can I move more in that direction than I am now and not worry about what I can't seem to master right now. Just take a step-by-step. -step. Master would say, you know, it's science is specific steps with predictable results. That's all it is, specific steps with predictable results that anyone can do. And of course, each one of us has a different skill set that we bring to that, so not everybody's going to get the same results out of trying that same step. But when they get to the place where they can do the step in the same way that somebody else does the step, 
they'll get the same result. That's the, the scientific approach. So I'd like to share with you, just briefly, a little exercise that, that Swami gave as kind of an illustration of this. I'd like to ask you to sit up nice and tall, as if you were going to meditate. Close the eyes, lift the gaze to the spiritual eye, and let's think for a moment, so we'll have something to work with here. Think of something that agitates your heart a little bit. Maybe it's the results of the upcoming presidential election in this country. Maybe it's uh, some past real happy experience or something that you're really, really looking forward to now, but something that gives you some excitement in the heart, whether you like it or not. And uh, just notice right in the center of your chest there what it feels like. And then begin to notice the effect of the exhalation portion of your breath on that feeling. Just a simple mechanical exhalation. Don't have to make it strong, don't need to make it long, just when you exhale, see if there's an effect on your heart. And of course, there is. There's a bit of a calming effect on the heart. Simple, mechanical, but now we can add something to it. Each time you exhale, consciously bring calmness into the heart. Very consciously, intentionally. And we've begun to bring the feeling aspect of who we are into this practice. It's not mechanical. You can't bring, bring calmness to something. It's not a mechanical thing. But let's go a step farther. Not only bringing calmness to the heart with the exhalation, but enjoying that calmness. Quietly, pleasantly, but enjoying it. Let's take it a step even farther. After you exhale, hold the breath out, just only as long as it's comfortable, and enjoy that calmness a little longer. Just feel it deepening, both the calmness and the enjoyment of the calmness. We're bringing our feeling nature more and more into this. Let's take one final step. Try to absorb yourself in that calmness, in that calm enjoyment. Try to become that calmness. Now let's open the eyes once again, and that's a very short practice, and I suspect that not everybody here was able to actually become that calmness, but it's just an illustration of moving along that spectrum of feeling toward the intuitive state where you do become that calmness. You just unite with it. And so, so probably every one of us got waylaid at some step along the way. We couldn't go any farther than whatever step. And even if it was the first step, we couldn't go any farther then. That first step of just noticing the, the effect of a mechanical exhalation on your heart. Even that's a step forward. It's a step forward from where you were before, and I dare say probably everybody here can take more steps than that. But this is that 
essence of the scientific approach. You don't worry about what you can't do. You try it, of course, but you focus on what you can do. And that's not just in our meditation techniques. That's really in our lives, because Master would emphasize you need to be a scientist in every aspect of your life. Begin investigating every aspect of your life. I had a very interesting experience. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was in New York, and uh, I was able to show the Finding Happiness movie to a group of people there. And for those of you who haven't seen Finding Happiness, um, it's time. And, and uh, But just to briefly mention what it, it's about, Ananda, uh, Ananda Village most specifically. But I, I look at it as, a, as an inspiration for those thousands of youths who must go north, south, east, and west to cover the earth with World Brotherhood colonies, like Master said, that inspiration for people to start intentional communities. Look, here's what could happen for your community. Here's what could happen for your community. So, at the end of this movie, uh, the, the one real professional actor that's in this, all the rest of us, all the rest of the actors are us, playing ourselves, um, she goes, she's an investigative reporter who has come to Ananda to see if this community has any answers to the turmoil that this world is going through. And she, she lives in New York City. And she asks Swami, what can I do? And you know, Swami answers, gives her a fairly brief answer. It's a movie after all. Everything has to be brief in a movie. He gives a brief answer of, um, you know, get together with some friends. Buy some land in the country. And if you can't live there, well then, they'll go there on weekends. And that doesn't say a whole lot more than that. So after the movie, I, had to, I opened the floor to questions. And this one woman, who people afterwards said was no doubt a New York lawyer, uh, just went, went on a negativity rampage uh, about all the things, this, could, this cannot happen. You can't just go out in the country and buy land. You can't, you're certainly not going to buy an apartment building in New York City. You can't do this and you can't do that. Just one thing after another. It was really a, a very fine rant. And, and, uh, uh, and a after she finished, I, I was so struck because I just couldn't help but say, isn't it interesting how if you look for reasons that something can't happen, you'll find them. Look for things that can happen. That's the way energy moves forward. That's the way things get accomplished. She, she had said oh, what that what Swami Kriyananda said at the end, go, you know, go buy land in the country. That's just capricious, you know, whimsical, unrealistic. And I, you know, if there's one word that I really wouldn't think to apply to Swami Kriyananda, it'd be, you know, capricious would be one of them. But, you know, you, after you've been around him for a while or been around this community for a while, you see what was going on. He was just throwing out this idea. And the idea is not the idea. The idea is to pursue it and see what happens. See what can happen. And probably what the final thing that can happen for any particular group of people may well be different from the idea that he was throwing out. But the thing is to get started on it to get, just move in that direction a little bit, starts to clarify the whole picture of what's possible. And you find out what this group of people can do. 
and what might be out of their reach right now, just like we do in our practices. You know, we can't, we can't necessarily do it all, but we find out what we can do. And we focus on what we can do. And then, yeah, reach toward, reach toward what we can't yet do. Constantly reach toward it, but not feel bad that we can't do it. Because a scientist doesn't feel bad, necessarily, when the experiment fails. I don't think Thomas Edison, uh, if he'd have felt bad every time his attempt at creating the electric light bulb uh, failed, he would have been really badly depressed for, for his entire life because he said, I didn't, I, I just, I didn't fail. I just found 10,000 ways that, that don't work. <laughs> and finally, he did find the way that worked. And that's what we're going to do, too. We are probably going to find maybe not 10,000, maybe 5,000, maybe only 10, maybe only five ways that, that don't work to, to reach out for that intuitive state where we begin to perceive even a little bit of who we are and not worry about any failures along the way because we will fail and we just get up and go again and go again and that's the scientific approach that's the specific steps with predictable results the science of religion Swami Riman McGilloway from Seattle, and together with Padma, my wife, we are honored to be the directors there of Ananda's work in the greater Seattle area, which we um, absconded with the rest of the state of Washington and appointed ourselves directors of all of Washington. <laughs> But uh, Gandhav and, and the three of us didn't really coordinate anything, and I'd like to uh, begin with an extension of the exercise he did just a few minutes ago. And uh, if there's anybody who needs to stand up, uh, would like to stand up, you can do that, but it's not necessary. What I'd like to do are two things. One is I'd like us to pay attention to our heart rate. And for some of you, it might be helpful to place your hands over your heart and close your eyes, entering the asana of meditation, straight spine and chest up. And I'm going to count to ten. And all you need to do is pay attention to your heart. I'm going to count slowly, and the object of the exercise is to see if in my counting slowly, your heartbeat will slow down. So close your eyes, and let's begin. Just pay attention to your heart as you listen to the counting. One, two, three, four, Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Now take a double breath and tense. Vibrate the body, exhale, hold the exhalation out, feel the heart. One more time, inhale and tense. Exhale, relax. See if you can slow the heart down. Just feel the heart. One, two, 
Okay, thank you. Just in general, in the practice of pranayama, whatever it might be, from double breathing to kapalbhati pranayama, one of my favorites, uh, all the way to kriya, we should make haste slowly. I find that in classes on how to meditate and workshops and retreats that sometimes the one guiding the uh, pranayams just sort of barrels through them like they're on the freeway hoping something will happen. When we do the energization exercises, most of us are really good about tensing and really bad about relaxing and feeling. And so I've made it a point during my own personal practice of energization to tune into certain rest points in the exercises. The most obvious one would be halfway through it, about a 20-part recharging, to take an extra moment to feel and go deeply. But my all-time favorite energization exercise is the last one, number 39, where you don't tense at all, you inhale... Exhale, hold the breath out as long as comfortable. It's where we segue to meditation. It's where we reap the fruits, you might say, of energizing the body, the astral body, the life force in the body, and then becoming identified with it. You can. It's as if you're Einstein and E equals MC squared by converting the mass of body consciousness into the energy of life force, an explosion, if you will, of energy, of joy, which is behind energy. The consciousness of energy is joy. I remember a T-shirt from our old Jogathon many years ago when our children would raise funds for the school here. We had a T-shirt. I kept it until it fell apart. It said, energy and joy go hand in hand. And if you want something done, who do you ask? A lazy person? No, a busy person. Isn't it so? There is joy in energy. Now, the topic I want to eventually get to is... Uh, is breathlessness. And, um, you know, there are so many... T well, what I want to say is that what I want to do first is read from the autobiography, of course, and then I want to go into intuition, if Gyandev doesn't mind. Okay. Let me find my thing here. Mm, okay. Where did it go? Well, I'm not finding it. Besides talking about Kriya, hmm. Well, I, it's it suddenly does not appear to me. But basically, um, what he says in autobiography is that the art and science of breath control is India's greatest contribution to the treasury of human knowledge. And Jyotish yesterday talked about the waves, and Gandhi talked about Yogananda's first book, Science of Religion. And it's as if there's a wave also, perhaps coming from the side and, and now becoming increasingly parallel in our consciousness, and that's the wave of science, the wave coming through that is beginning to corroborate the findings or the assertions uh, 
of meditation and the benefits of yoga practice. I don't think a week goes by in which I don't hear of the latest study on meditation. You know, we use a term called counterintuition. How many of us, probably every one of us, have sat on the tarmac in an airplane about to take off, and you look around, you see, you know, all these people, hundreds of people, and you saw that baggage they were loading on there, three to four hundred tons of stuff, right? And haven't we all wondered, how can this thing possibly fly? <laughs> well, we, well, as part of intuition, I read a, a wonderful article by, a, at, at the time, a newly appointed president of Harvard University who talked about her goals and so forth. It was a wonderful article until the end in which she condemned intuition as we don't teach that. Our, 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 our culture just does not really understand it, and Gyandev, thank goodness, spoke about that. But it's really counter to our sense experience that we can't fly. But intuitionally, human beings have dreamed, whether literally in dreams, or have aspired to fly forever. And we do, and we have, in these airplanes, and rocket ships, and so forth. Intuition tells us that we can do many things that our sense experience says we cannot. And breathing is one of those things. Naturally, we associate breathing with being alive. A baby takes his first breath and screams his lungs out, realizing he did it again. But um, here I am. Why did I do this? Did I make a wrong turn? Um, sure seems like it to me. And then, of course, at death, we have our long, slow uh, exhalation before we leave the body. And yet, there's a, a, a process called sustained res, res, uh, resuscitation. Uh, Sam Parnia, a physician in New York City, has been experimenting with uh, being able to resuscitate a person who has been declared dead or no biological signs for sometimes hours by combining lowering the body temperature with sustained and a certain rhythmic uh, CPR um, process, and then uh, lowering the oxygen level and feeding it back slowly. There was a little boy who fell into a, a, a river not that long ago and was, was without life signs, vital signs, for 101 minutes. And uh, the team that did, in fact, resuscitate him did some extraordinary measures. But nonetheless, in three days, the little kid walked out of the hospital. He was a little wobbly, they said, but he, he was very much alive. And so we're, the, we're at a frontier where even death is, is, is a new territory of exploration by science. Um, there's a, a meditation researcher, I think his name is Richard Davidson, and he's been investigating uh, something the uh, Tibetan Buddhist monks call thukdam, and it's basically like a mahasamadhi. And he observed this in Wisconsin and then has traveled to uh, northern India and has trained some of the monks there to actually uh, wire up these guys and so forth. But basically, they know when they're going to die. They enter a state of meditation. All their vital signs disappear. They don't come back. I mean, they're dead. But to, to all appearances, other than the vital signs in terms of the skin, decay, rigor mortis, etc., etc., they're just, they're just there. 
a week, sometimes more than a week. And so he wants to investigate that connection. And one of the founders of uh, neuroscience, I think is the right term, um, Wilder Penn or something like that. Anyway, he started. Pro he was one of the first to start probing the brain with, with electric probes. And you know how we teach to listen inside the right ear. And uh, he found that by probing on the just above the right temporal lobe here at what's known as the sylvan fissure, he was able to have patients, and it doesn't hurt them at all, there's no pain felt, um, actually experience and consciously say so out-of-body experiences just from that simple probing. And so when we talk about breathlessness, and the yogis say breathlessness is deathlessness, we come up against something that doesn't Again, it's not counterintuitive, it's simply counter to our common sense experience. But it's very intuitive. Think about this. When you've been ill, you have a disease, chronic or otherwise, um, or as we age and experience the debilitating effects of aging, and in fact death too. Don't we all intuitively know that our troubles, including emotional and mental, not just these physical things that we all have, on some level we know that these things are foreign to us. Logic and common sense will tell us, well, like Buddha himself, discovering illness, old age, and, and death, and going off to solve the mystery of life. So we can't deny the logic of, of the human drama and human experience, but on a deeper than conscious level, we don't identify with it. And even when we accept, let's say, the, the fact that we're dying, even when we accept it, we accept it with a calmness that is transcendent. Swami Kriyananda um, wrote, I think it's in the 14 Steps, The Art and Science, Raja Yoga, he said that, whereas for most of us, action, including completing our job and task at hand, um, the goal of action has for its uh, purpose rest to completion. And he said the goal of breathing techniques is to achieve breathlessness. And the goal of life, he went on further to say, is transcendence. It's a natural part of us to want to transcend the limitations of our, of our race, of our birth, of all the things that hem in our spirit. So when we talk about breathlessness, it is not as far away as we might think. You know, um, when we are taught in meditation to focus at the point between the eyebrows, known in Sanskrit as the kutasta, um, one of the translations of that term is anvil, something we don't have much experience with most of us, but on an anvil, a blacksmith or an iron worker will uh, create tools and various things. The anvil never changes. And as we lift our gaze to the point between the eyebrows, and it's a, not only should we do that and are taught to do that in meditation, but what we often don't do is just that. Yogananda, when asked what, would, what is a master, one definition he gave was one whose consciousness is fixed here, permanently. If we look up and hold, as we go into meditation, take a few moments. 
you can it's like a litmus test you can test where your metabolism is you can test where your heart's emotions are you can test where your mind the clarity of your mind by taking a few moments to lift your gaze behind closed eyes and see how steady it is and in the process it'll help you to be calm and you can do this anytime during the day being from california originally and the washington drivers being kind of slow on the take uh, i get a little frustrated when i have to wait for four people to say yes after you after you at the stop li- at stop signs so forth i once got a ticket because i got so impatient i just punched it went through the five-way stop because nobody would go and and i got pulled over and the cop said that was not very polite. <laughs> and I said, but I'm from California. Oh, well, I'll just give you a warning. And so when I'm at a stoplight or that sort of thing, and, and I've trained myself to look up. <laughs> One of the things I enjoy doing on the freeway, because we live on I-5 in Seattle, there's no other route to go. And so I like to do, you know, now they show the nom as the drivers go by and they look and just having some fun. Instead of that other gesture, I do a mudra. But, you know, Jyotish also talked about the yugas and I figured, I estimated last night that I perhaps have taught the Raja course over three months, maybe 50 times in the last 20 plus years. And in the first few years, I used to get frustrated because Kriyananda Swamiji starts this wonderful course on the yugas. Now, what student of meditation even wants to hear about this thing? And, and yet, it is, I've come to realize, the objective basis for our teachings. I don't have time to get into that here today, but um, I endorse his recommendation to read the Yuga's book because behind everything we teach, I can't think of any major workshop or lecture that any of our teachers, including Swamiji over many years, has given in which there isn't some passing reference to the Yuga's. Take, for example, yoga. The word yoga universally, and this is in India too, is universally associated with hatha yoga, the physical poses. It's not what the word really means. And in fact, when Gyandev wrote his book on yoga, he had to call it spiritual yoga in order to make the distinction. Well, we shouldn't have to call it spiritual yoga. It is yoga because it's there to uplift us into superconsciousness. Once one of the great contributions are teachings and, and Swamiji, especially in, in the book I love so much, it's the core course for our meditation teacher training, Awaken to Superconsciousness. We teach people to awaken to intuition, as Gandhav was saying, to superconsciousness, to a level of being that transcends the ego. I haven't surveyed a lot of meditation teachings and so forth, but um, I know many of them, you just listen to music or you just chant a mantra, but to actually go beyond the ego is, is the highest aspect of meditation. But not only that, but prana coming up through the Kali Yuga has been associated entirely with breath rather than the life force. 
And a curious thing I thought to share with you is that as the descending ages of the 12,000 years declined and humanity was losing, losing the capacity to attune ourselves to divine consciousness as in the Satya Yuga or to the lesser gods, if you will, in Treta Yuga as we move down through uh, Dwapara. In the cult of Osiris in Egypt, they had a, a, a ritual in which the new pharaoh or maybe the new high priest would be, uh, they'd go into the great pyramid deep inside and they'd put the uh, pharaoh to be, let's say, in a casket and seal it with wax and basically suffocate the, the fellow. And they would count very precise, have very precise count. And then they'd let the old buster out. And the purpose of that, it was crude and dangerous, but the purpose of it was to give the person basically a near-death experience in which the, he would experience going through the tunnel and into the light. And as we know from the surveys of near-death experiences, which is such a wonderful contribution uh, in many ways, including to, to science, uh, because some very uh, well-credentialed people are studying these things, this is the consistent experience. They, uh, there was a survey of people who had NDEs, as, as it's called, and they asked them to describe the medical procedures performed on their so-called dead body as they watched from above. And then they took another group of very medically savvy people and they asked them, well, what procedures would, would probably take place during a resuscitation effort? The NDEs were virtually 100% correct. They accurately described everything that took place when they weren't breathing. The other group didn't do so well. And so this wave of science is, is backing us up in that. Swamiji, Swamiji um, I forget in where I got this source. I'm sure Padma will demand I find it. But in any case, um, I know it's right. Um, he said, you know the movie Sound of Music? Great movie, right? Well, you know uh, Georg the Baron and Maria, the, I was going to say mistress, I meant nanny, um, fell, fall in love. And I'm not t totally clear of the scene. I think they were dancing on the patio or something. And anyway, and so they suddenly they have this moment of mutual recognition that they're in love. And he says at that moment, it's silence. He said, even human love, when it achieves the apex of perfection, does so in silence. And when, when I'm driving down the freeway in, in uh, where do I live, Seattle, um, and I come around the corner and I see Mount Rainier, it's like we have moments of breathlessness all the time. We just, it just goes again, it's not in our vocabulary. It's like our little children in a culture that doesn't believe in reincarnation. They say all sorts of amazing things, but the parents don't pay any attention to it because they don't really understand what they're saying. And the more we can tune into breathlessness, the more we can experience it at any time. <sighs> we should... One time I, got, one time I got my first colonoscopy, I was sitting there, and I don't... I don't I, I'm not going to get into that part. I, you're jumping ahead of me there. Uh, no, we're not going to talk about that. But... Uh, 
I don't really do that well with medical exams and stuff. But anyway, so I was sort of prepping myself and, and so forth. So I was, you know, doing this. And the nurse, I think she was sort of new. She was trying to get, you know, when they do that thing. And Mr. McGilloway, um, I don't feel a pulse. And oh, I said, oh, I was just doing my yoga stuff. Sorry. And, you know, each one of us should be able to develop the art of slowing down our heart. Because even if you, one doesn't, a, a saint who doesn't know any yoga, going into ecstasy, this is what happens. And the great contribution to the treasury of spiritual awakening is the fact that we can hasten that process not only by right action and devotion, which is necessary, but also through the science of breath awareness and control. We should aspire, and Hong Sa and Kriya, they both come at it in different ways. I'm not going to talk about Kriya, but, but um, help us to transcend that breath. You know, there's a pranic switch, one in the heart and one in the medulla. Secondary switch is here in the heart, in the stage of pranayama. And as we, through breath awareness, and Hong Sa is a pranayama. It's not usually thought of it because it's like a prananiyama. But it nonetheless is because its purpose is to go beyond the breath. And so as we follow the breath and we become calmer, I'm not here to give a class on Hong Sa, um, and as we begin to look for and enjoy the pauses after the exhalation or wherever the pauses or shallowness of breath may occur. We, you see, it's intuition. It's intuition that opens the doorway to transcendence, to superconsciousness, and for my purposes today, to breathlessness. Now, my caveat is the fact that breathlessness is not, by and of itself, superconsciousness. It is not samadhi. In fact, you can press on certain nerves and enter a trance state. You, you can go into subconsciousness and breathlessness. You can, people can demonstrate, some people, some of these things. So, though I'm not speaking here about the spiritual path and devotion and so forth, blessed are the pure in heart. Breathlessness, nonetheless, and we're speaking of the science of meditation, is the doorway to superconsciousness. And if a devotee can learn to control the breath and the heart rate. And the slower uh, the heart rate, uh, heart rate, including the resting heart rate, we know from medical science, the, the odds are greatly increased of the longevity of your life. Yogananda predicted decade, decades before it's been proven by medical science that the practice of yoga would increase our lifespan as well as our health. In fact, some studies have shown that it can not only slow the aging process, but reverse the effects of aging. Memory, I'm, I'm hoping memory. But anyway, I, I, I keep forgetting about that point. Um, but there is also one other caveat, which is for some people, when we experience breathlessness, particularly in meditation, although it can come other times, um, there is an autonomic response of panic or fear. For example, one pranayama I love to do, kapabhati pranayama, where you do repeated thrusts of the abdomen, and you basically shock the heart, and you rapidly decarbonize the bloodstream, 
okay, with very little oxygen intake. And you know how they send the astronauts up on a 737 and go as high as the thing will go and then they drop? Well, they can experience uh, uh, weightlessness for a short time, but they that's how they kind of get used to it. Well, we can use pranayama to experience a taste of of, of breathlessness because the actual onset of breathlessness, though it can be helped through the science of it, is, as I say, an actual intuitive experience. How many times you maybe gaze out the window at a beautiful sunset, or you look at a flower, you go to focus on anything and immediately we can learn, in other words, to enter, I, I love that story of, of uh, Ramakrishna, who the first samadhi he had, supposedly a flock of geese flew over and he went into samadhi. Well, I've been looking at those ducks, and it hasn't happened. So I, I guess it's not about the ducks. But, uh, but what I'm saying is we attune ourselves to transcendence through intuition, and we can hasten that if we use the science of yoga to learn to control our breath. Diet does has plays a part. A rich emotional life, a life of drama, contributes negatively to that ability. But by paying attention to the heart, to the breath, you know, one reason to a uh, is one of the ways out. And when I teach Hong Sa, I say, one of the things that you're learning in this simple but Yogananda called it the highest technique of concentration, is you're, by practicing watching the breath in meditation when nothing, you're not doing anything else, you're actually reprogramming the brain, the mind, to watch yourself during activity, to become mindful. Now, many years ago, the term mindfulness conjured up watching one's thoughts. But in fact, as, as the industry of meditation has evolved through scientific analysis, mindfulness is squarely in the camp, squarely is centered and founded upon watching the breath. Well, guess who just caught up with us? And so this breath, which is the, an obstacle to concentration, is at the same time the doorway out. And so we can attune ourselves through the doorway of intuition, just as humanity has sought to fly, we should affirm and seek to fly above the confines of the breath, the body, and the ego by attuning ourselves intuitively to breathlessness. Good morning, everyone. My name is Naya Swami Anandi, and I, too, would like to start with a brief experiment. I would like you to tune in to the feeling in your spine and your bottom as you sit in your chair. And I would like you now to stand up, reach up, stretch, inhale intense, and reassess. Okay. Fresh flow of blood. You now sit down again. 
I was thinking about what we love about Spiritual Renewal Week, and it has to do with looking around at all these people who come. And when I think of these people, what comes to mind first is people who have a lot of love, a lot of kindness. But what I was realizing, this is what makes this group special also, is that we're all spiritual scientists. Not only those of us who are practicing Kriya Yoga and have determined to use, uh, as uh, Gandav and Freeman were talking about, the science of pranayama to bring our energy to the spine, but those who are meditating in any way. Spiritual scientists are people who are willing to look at life and say, is this working? How can I improve myself? How can I re- how can I shift where my consciousness is? Is what I'm doing working? If it's not working, how can I change? Even in small ways, looking at life and saying, I'm judging people. Does that make me feel happy? Does it make me, does it make people like me? Then why am I doing it? Who is suffering? Me. Okay. Why am I doing it? I'm afraid. What am I afraid of? Take it deeper and deeper. The scientist is probing for information. Why is it there? And then come to what we can assess, hold it up to God and say, free me. I want to change. I want to learn from what I'm doing. I want to make better choices. If we're anxious, I've been thinking about this lately. Why do we become anxious? You don't say I give up my anxiety. What is the anxiety from? I'm attached. I'm attached to things being the way I want them to be. I'm attached to people thinking of me the way I want them to think of me. How can I release that? How can I give that into God's hands? So we're, we're willing. And the people who come here are very awake and they're very much trying to the best of our ability to figure out which direction leads toward freedom. In the autobiography of a yogi, as Jyotish and Devi referred to yesterday, the chapter where Master is given his first experience of samadhi. Um, he goes into the state from which he wrote the poem Samadhi, in which he expands his consciousness to experience all of creation. And he feels tremendous bliss. And he says, after that experience, I was able to learn to go into that state at will. I was able to learn to transmit that state at will. And after that, after some, a month of this, he says to Sri Yukteswar, Sir, when will I find God? And Sri Yukteswar says to him, well, you have God. And he said, oh, no. And then Sri Yukteswar says, well, I'm sure you're not expecting God to be some venerable personage adorning a throne in some antiseptic corner of space. But I see that you are associating finding God with miracles. He said, you could have the whole world and you would not have God. God is joy. The experience of bliss, the experience of joy is God and it will endlessly woo you. It will endlessly take you deeper and deeper. And Master says, I realized he was right. Not only did I feel that bliss, but when I felt it, I was guided to do 
the right thing in everything. So in our scientific experiments, we are trying to attune ourselves to that place of joy, to that place of bliss. Yoga tells us that that bliss resides here, that, that our unity with creation is centered even at this moment, at the point between the eyebrows and the top of the head, that this positive pole of our being is always united with God. And that is a magnet that's pulling us forward, that we want to be in that place. And yes, also we have another magnet within us at the below the base of the spine, the kundalini, that's saying, no, don't do that. That's too much trouble. Just go to sleep. Just don't try. Just think about yourself. Just shut out the world. And so we have these two poles always within us. And we're trying to learn how to cooperate with that upward pull, with that pull toward super consciousness, toward unity. This past um, May, we had a retreat for Kriya initiates, and Jyotish at that retreat said something that keeps coming back to me. He said, he was talking about Kriya practice, and he said, but it, it extends to all of life. He said, there's things in our practice that we cannot control. We cannot control how much of superconsciousness we have. We cannot control how much love we feel for God. Yesterday, Davy was explaining this tremendous amount of love for God that's needed to find God. Master told one of his disciples, if you want to find God, you have to want God so much that you cannot live another day without him. And yet, you go on day after day with that much love. Well, I can't feel that much love. I don't know if, if any of us can. I can't control that. But what I can control, the, so, the, the, so what you tested is there are many things we can't control, but there are some things we can control. And so we don't worry about what we can't control, just like Gandhi is saying, we don't worry what we can't do. We worry what can I control. I can control if I'm cooperating with that downward pull of subconsciousness. I can control if I'm trying to lift my consciousness to the spiritual eye. If we're expecting a guest, a, a special, special guest that we hope is going to come visit us, and they're going to come at, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and we're not sure they're going to come, but we would be really, really smart to sit near the front door it would be not very smart to go in the basement at 2 o'clock and put on our headphones and listen to music because we might not hear the doorbell. So we want to cooperate with what we can to lift our energy. And so when I, this topic of the science of religion came up and Davey said, how about being on this panel? I thought, me? Science? And then I realized that for me, not only are we all scientists, are we all Kriya, all of us who are Kriya yogis and meditators, we're all practicing the science of yoga, but I realized that this year for me has actually been the science of religion. It's, I would entitle it the exploration of the spiritual eye. And I'm going to talk to you about this experiment of this year. It's been very, very inspiring. But before I do that, I want to 
explain something that many of us have heard. Many of us have heard um, Ananda's Dr. Peter Van Houten talk about the brain and how the brain and meditation are related. I've, because of my work at the Expanding Light, I've probably heard him a dozen more times than most people, and it's been very, very important and helpful for me. But I want to just hit the highlights of uh, what he has brought to us, to our understanding. That how we are made is that the brain will respond to how we use it. It doesn't matter how you use it. If you decide to learn to play the flute, the brain will help you play the flute. If you decide to be angry, the brain will help you become angry. It doesn't assess, it doesn't judge, it just helps you do what you want to do. And that this part of our brain, the prefrontal lobes, which we yogis call the spiritual eye, the American Medical Association is saying this part of our brain is where we feel happiness. The more mass we have here, the more happiness we feel. And again, from the American Medical Association, the way that we develop this mass is best done through meditation. Amazing. They also teach that there's another part of our brain called the limbic system. And the limbic system, which is behind the brain, is associated with um, our fight or flight. It's also associated with anxiety, fear, anger, rage, and depression. Not things we want to feel, obviously. And so they're med recommending meditation. Well, this year, our, um, at Ananda, we had study groups for the Bhagavad Gita. And our Bhagavad Gita study group started with Chapter 5. And in Chapter 5 of the Bhagavad Gita, uh, Swami and Masters tell us that at death, as Sriman was talking about, we have a choice. For the um, enlightened yogi, he goes out through the spiritual eye. The unenlightened yogi goes out through the back of the brain in subconsciousness. And I felt a chilling familiarity when I read that. I thought, oh no, not again. Um, because I'm not positive that I'm right about this, but I think for most of us, the reason that we're here is that we did not go out through the spiritual eye. I think there's more to, to that story, but I think that you could say that. And so in our group, we created a list of ways that we can focus our mind at the spiritual eye and begin to practice them. And one of them was described by Swami Kriyananda in an article he entitled The Final Exam, talking about helping people prepare, prepare for death. And he said that when you're with someone who's leaving the body, you should place their, your finger on their spiritual eye, and you should, with your will, draw their life force here. Well, we decided to practice it by using our own index finger on our own spiritual eye and using our will to draw our mind there. Now, Master said that in his days in Sri Yukteswar's ashram, that's what he did. He kept his mind there all the time. He didn't keep his index finger there, and we can do it without keeping our index finger there, but it can be helpful in certain times, in certain needs. 
recently in June, another Ananda teacher and I went to Reno and we gave a couple of workshops there. And my second workshop was on meditation, and I was explaining what I just explained about the brain and meditation and anger and so forth. And this young man raised his hand, and his hand was covered in a bandage. And he said, and then I understood the bandage, he said, can you teach me? He said, I have a habit of getting angry and punching the wall. Can you teach me? how I can, when I feel angry and I want to punch the wall, how I can stop and meditate before I punch the wall. And I said, well, I don't think that's going to work. Um, but if you meditate just a few minutes every day, you may feel more calm and you may not want to punch the wall. But later in that class, I had people try the experiment. And I'm going to lead us in it briefly in just a moment of putting their finger here and concentrating there. just I said, just bring all your attention to where your finger is. And, I, and there were uh, many positive responses, but the best response to me was the young man with the hanger problem. And he said, yes, I can feel this, and this is something I can do before I punch the wall. So I want us to try a little experiment now. I think I'm going to... Um, no, we'll just do it the regular way. Okay. So, once again, as um, uh, now I can't remember who had us bring to, to mind something that made us anxious, but let's just bring to mind something that makes you a little annoyed, irritated, frustrated, not happy. I know it's not that easy for a group of yogis to do this, but just <laughs> if you can just bring something that's not your favorite thing to mind and just see how you feel. And explore, because this is the basis of our experiment, explore any what I would call subconscious responses, negative feelings that you have to that. And now just once again, inhale, stand up, tense your body, open your eyes, and just bring your mind to a conscious place. I could do something about this. Yes, I could do something about this. Okay, now sit down. And bring your mind, put your index finger over the spiritual eye and use your will and use your intention and bring all of your attention to the spiritual eye, the point between the eyebrows. Feel that you are consciously choosing to align your consciousness with the divine, with joy, with the presence of God within you. Okay. You can relax your hand and take just a brief look now at that thing that made you anxious and see if you have a different feeling about it. Okay? I hope you felt some shift in consciousness. And I would really encourage you, if you did, to use this as a specific tool in your scientific explorations of the path. As I've been using this past year, I had a couple of experiences that I want to share. 
I believe they were gifts given to me so that I could experiment. I don't get angry that often. But shortly after we started our spiritual eye experiments, I, something happened with another person, and I became extremely annoyed. And I tried to express my annoyance in an articulate fashion, and it, it fell on deaf ears. And so I walked away, and as I was walking along, I was intellectually rehearsing why I was right, of course. And, but I remembered our Gita class, and I thought, what if I were to die right now? I'd go right out through the subconscious. I can't have that. And so I stopped, and here I was feeling quite angry, and I put my, my finger at the spiritual eye, and I said, no. I'm not going to go there. I can choose to be aligned with joy, to be aligned with God. And it took less than two minutes to feel a joy that was just wonderful. Well, I'm going to give you the postscript to that story because it's important. I was feeling so good that I continued my walk, and I thought, I think I could explain to my friend better what I meant about why I was right and why I was wrong. And lo and behold, I started to feel the same annoyance creep back in. So then, and I'm saying this because I'm encouraging uh, experimentation, I stopped and I said, God, I've expressed myself once. I refuse to say another word about this. It is over. I will never let this, I will never try to express this again. And now I will, I will focus at the spiritual eye. <laughs> And that was a permanent shift. And it wasn't a shift of suppression, and it wasn't a shift of, oh, I'm going to give up on this whole thing. It was freedom. And it's a wonderful thing. Later in the year, much more recently, something happened that was also an experience that brought on a feeling of despair. And it, I had never had anything like that before. It was like a coat of despair. And it hung, it, I wore it for a few hours. Naturally, I forgot my experiment, and I was just wearing it. But I had to give a class at the expanding light in the afternoon, and I had to get rid of it. And I really didn't know what to do, so I thought, I'll take a nap. But I lay down in bed. I did not take a nap. I just lay down in bed. I put my finger here, and I said, I have to change this. I have to align myself with God. And with God is freedom, and with God is joy, and I will leave this. It's not permanent. I have to escape from it. And it took 10 minutes, it took 15 minutes, it took a while, but it was gone. It was gone. It didn't involve any discussion, it didn't involve any outward change, it involved changing consciousness. And this has been a great, great year of experimentation, and I wanted to share it with you because I hope it could be useful to you. I shared it in um, a Yoga Sutras class here. Uh, we had a little one-hour class, and we did the a little bit longer version of what you we did this morning of just bringing our mind here. And afterwards, one of the women said, my profession is I'm a psychologist, and I would like to try this on my patients. So I just knowing about this class, I just wrote her and I said, did you try it? She said, I've tried it often. She said, I've tried it on schizophrenics with neg very negative attitudes. I've tried it on people who were depressed with very stuck feelings. 
and they've all felt an upliftment of consciousness. Now, I'm not saying this is, you know, I don't think they were permanently healed. I don't know that that's true. But it's a tool to, to really uplift our consciousness, and it's a tool to align ourselves with that presence of God, the presence of joy that is who we are, that is always within us. In the autobiography of a yogi, in the chapter on the law of miracles, Master shares a story that I think is valuable to share because it was very meaningful to me. At the end, he's talking about what happened to him. He was sitting meditating. Many of you know this. He was meditating at Four Garpar Road. And suddenly he was in the body of a captain of a ship. And the ship was hit by a shell. And the, the, the ship exploded. And Master and his men that were still alive dove into the water and swam for the shore. And as he climbed onto the shore, a bullet hit him in the chest. He said, I felt the blood seeping out of my body. I felt this is it. I'm dying. And he was in that experience. And then moments later, he was sitting in Gorpar Road meditating. And he was so excited. Oh, I'm not dead. After all, I'm here I am. I'm alive. And he's breathing and happy. Back in the body of the captain dying on the battlefield. He just said, God, am I dead or am I alive? And the, what he heard was, Neither. What has life and death to do with light? You are neither dead or alive. We are images of light. And I think that story, which is rather dramatic and not something we can duplicate in our lives, it's important because sometimes you're meditating and you feel full of joy and you feel God is so close and you feel the spiritual path is so wonderful and just such a breeze. And then the next morning you wake up and you're, you're totally flat. You can't concentrate. You can't feel anything of God's presence. And you say, God, which is real? Am I a devotee full of devotion or am I a completely flat failure of a meditator? Neither. Neither is true. God is always there. God is the light behind you. It doesn't matter how you feel. We just have to look for that light. We have to look for that presence of God. So we are all in the middle of a great scientific experiment. And Master said the best way to get results is not to look for the results, but to keep doing this, what you need to get the results. We want results. We need to work for the results. We want to not look for the results because then just like the the person who starts a scientific experiment and he stops it and says oh I wonder if it's working oh it's not working it won't work we have to keep up with the experiment till the end of life we have to keep saying how can I get better at what I'm doing what tools are available for me to use how can I be a better scientist what can I learn from my teachings? What can I learn from the techniques? How can I bring more of myself into this process? We want to attune ourselves and we want to not give up until the experiment is successfully completed. <laughs>